We praise God for His grace that brings us here again to His house on the Lord's Day. May we certainly come with an eagerness to hear the voice of God, the Word of God, and that in turn would increase our love for Christ Jesus. That is indeed our desire. It is to glorify the Lord, and at the same point to have that love for Christ in our, in our hearts. And so keep in mind again the meetings that uh, lie ahead. We can remember, of course, our time of prayer at 5.15. Also this afternoon, uh, there is our nursing home ministry. Keep that in prayer, please, at 2.30 in Twin Pines this afternoon. Uh, again, pray for God's blessing upon the Word in that occasion. And then 6 o'clock, coming back again, uh, moving forward in our studies as David is leaving Jerusalem. And he has the unpleasant meetings with Zeba and Shimei tonight. And again, that passage is 2 Samuel chapter 16. Again, we're going to try to take that entire chapter, that chunk of Scripture. And so I encourage you, as often the case, to read it before you come. Have some idea of its contents. And I hope we'll make it easier for you to follow along uh, this evening. Season of prayer and Bible study again. Uh, perhaps those of you who don't know, we started a new series on, the, uh, on Jonah, the book of Jonah. Uh, those are available online, on Sermon Audio and other podcast things also. And so those studies have begun. The third one will be on Wednesday, Lord willing. Uh, so please do come along uh, under the Word of God on Wednesday. If you can't make it here in person, then use a Zoom link, please. Saturday morning, ladies, your fellowship time at the Kearns home, uh, 10 o'clock this coming Saturday morning. And again, remember the sign-up sheets are on the lobby table alongside some of the care packages and the plans for that are also on the lobby table uh, today. Well, let's come in the Word of God back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and again, we're in this section, verse 14 and following. I kind of suggest that we come to this in in various ways over a few weeks, again, looking at the entire section each time, but perhaps focusing on different aspects of it, and the same is the case for today. Let's read again from the verse number 14. Remember once more that the faithful men addressed in verse number 2 are those who are particularly in view. Uh, addressing these men, and so Paul says, Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and the word will eat at the canker of him is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid knowing that they do gender strife. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, 
and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Amen. This is the word of God for our hearts uh, today. May God give us a submissive spirit towards his truth. We'll sing once more before we come to the, the word of God. Hymn number 225. 225, the living stone on Christ, salvation rests secure. The rock of ages must endure, nor can that faith be overthrown which rests upon the living stone. Bibles up again, encourage you to do so at this point. Returning once more to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Today, I suppose, the center of our focus will be in verses 21 and 22. So let's read those verses and let's call then upon the Lord. 2 Timothy 2 21. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace 
with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Amen. May God indeed encourage us together today. Let's bow together in prayer. Let's call upon the Lord. Almighty God and Father, we thank you again for the opportunity around the Word. What a gracious God you are that you've shown us your will in the inspired page of this book. Thank you for the clarity and the direction that we receive. Help us, O Lord, to take it to heart, that we would study carefully, and that we be those, O God, who seek to walk with Thee. We thank you again that Christ's blood has been shed to purify a people unto Himself. Use the Word, O God, to continue to make us more like Christ Jesus. So bless the hearts of each and every hearer. May they know the help of the Spirit of God as I claim and pray for the same help for me, the preacher. Grant us your grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We sometimes use the phrase, the Lord's work. We talk about it in prayer. We refer to it in terms of Christian ministry. And of course, that concept, the Lord's work, uh, can have different angles of meaning. It could refer to the Lord's working in His people the Lord's work in His church, or it could refer to or working for the Lord. We're engaged in the Lord's work. And of course, properly understood, it's both of those things. Both of those things coming together. Indeed, it is the Lord's work in His people. That work is done in conjunction with or work for each other for God's glory. This idea that we're all engaged in the Lord's work. The Lord himself working through us for the nurturing of his people and for the good of the whole. That's what makes this so important in this chapter. Paul is telling Timothy and these other faithful men that they're engaged in the work of the Lord. And that as God works in them, he's working in them for the good of the Lord's people. This is the Lord's work being done. And when there are false teachers in the Lord's work, They cause damage. Their presence is harmful. Verse 14 is clear that if the servant of God begins to engage in the manner of the false teaching, they will subvert or undermine the hearers in their faith. Verse 16 or verse 15 again describes the false teachers as having words eating like a canker, like an ulcer enveloping and devouring the flesh around it. Vivid picture. And the same is said in verse number 18, where the false teaching of Hymenaeus and Philetus is said to overthrow the faith of some. All of this, of course, false teaching, verse 16, increasing unto more ungodliness. The true and the false may coexist in the Lord's work. That's part of what Paul is saying here. But that fact is not intended to lead to complacency. Well, we can't do anything about it. So you get somebody's idea, well, what what can we do about it? The true and false live together. we're, We're helpless in this situation. Well, of course, that's the very opposite of this passage. The whole passage is recognizing that true and false are present in Ephesus. 
but that Timothy as a man of God has to deal with the false. You see, the fact of false teaching in the midst of the church, that fact is intended not to lead to complacency, but to conduct action in Timothy and in the other faithful men. The fact of false teaching producing in Timothy by God's grace a serious and a separated ministry. We again find ourselves in this present juncture of human history with another example that's been given to us in recent times. Many of you, I'm sure, will have heard or read things regarding the Ashbury University revival, so-called, in Kentucky. Again, if you're not on social media, you may not be so aware, but it is all over social media at this present time. Now, I am not, uh, for a second, seeking to prejudge an individual's experience, but there is so much there that is false. Charismatic extremism, ecumenical activities, and even some sort of tipping of the hat to the LGBT confusion. Now, whilst we look from a distance, and it's only from a distance, and we cannot prejudge what may happen in someone's personal experience with God and in their heart, we should at least acknowledge that the false damages the Lord's work and must be dealt with. That's the reality, whether it's here or anywhere else. When there is false things in the Lord's work, then it must be dealt with and addressed, not tolerated and accepted. And so if there are any young people perhaps who are finding themselves in that situation in Kentucky, the best thing they could do was to leave. If God has worked in their hearts, they would be best leaving that situation and seeking God where there's truth to be found. It's just the reality of these things. We live in days of confusion. And if we're judged as being skeptical, well then if we're judged as prejudicing the work of God in some way in in, 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 in some way, in, in, in hindering the work of God, or the Spirit of God. Discernment is required. This passage is all about discernment. Realizing there are things that are true and there are things that are false. And the whole context of 2 Timothy chapter 2 is a reminder to us of the importance of a serious and a separate ministry, where we discern true and false, and we call false false, and we don't tolerate false and encourage false. We seek to do those things that are pleasing to the Lord. And so last time we were in this passage, we looked at the importance of a serious ministry. That is a commitment to the revealed Word of God. That considers carefully the revealed Word of God and then clarifies that to the people. That's the importance of a serious, godly ministry. A ministry that then in turn separates from the false. Again, that avoids these things, that flees from them in the language of verse number 19, that those who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. It's that call from a separation from that which is false, recognizing it and departing from it. And of course, we saw the context there is Numbers chapter 16. And you want to see God's judgment on the false? And you see the situation that took place in Cord and Dathan and Abiram. But we must move on today and realize that in the third place in this ministry that is required for the people of God, it must be a sanctified ministry. That's the language used in verse number 21. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use. This idea of a ministry being a ministry that's held by those who are saved and holy men. Here we see again the importance of holiness. If you see your outline there, that's really the two headings that we'll consider today. 
You have the importance of holiness followed by the imperatives of holiness. And the importance of holiness is writ large in the Word of God. We see it back in the Old Testament. Before we get there, let me remind you again of the metaphors being used here. Verse number 20, there is a great house. And I take you back to my grandmother's house, a humble place where there are all sorts of pots and pans. But they were distinguished. They were the ones that were for special use and they were the ones that were used for the other matters. And there was a separation between the two. And so in that metaphor, verse number 20, Paul is emphasizing the fact that yes, in the true church, there are wheat and tares, true and false, and they may indeed coexist. But the Lord is pleased to use those who are sanctified unto him. Verse 21, who will the Lord use? Not those unto dishonor, but those unto honor. Sanctified. And then that word meat has this idea of being suitable for the master's use. And we'll see more of that later on. And so holiness is the theme here, uh, the importance of being holy unto God. And again, that has been taught to the people of God through the times of the Old Testament. The point is, you don't want to mix up the various utensils. And the Lord is pleased to use the clean in his sight. It's the importance again of the man of God being a holy and a sanctified man. Think of the priesthood in the Old Testament. What a procedure they had to go through before they could enter the presence of God. All of the ceremonies. Blood and oil and clothing being given to them, applied to various parts. All of that in order that they would be sanctified. The term there, not describing their inner purity in that sense, but their ceremonial sanctity. That they are acceptable to God in picture forms. Sinners set apart for the work of God. You understand, in that room across there, I don't go through all manner of procedures for the pulpit. I don't apply blood and oil, and I don't have any fancy clothes like that to uh, indicate purification. There are things that are different now, aren't there? We can understand that practically. We see that in our experience. So turn to Hebrews, please. Because if you're going to understand this idea that the Lord used sanctified men, you've got to realize what that means in the context of the New Testament And Hebrews is the best place to go because it shows us the parallels between the men of God sanctified in the Old Testament, the priests of the Old Testament, and the believers in the New. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. Note there to begin with. Again, of course, referring to our Savior, for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Again, of course, in the context referring to Christ's sufferings. Suffering to bring many sons to glory. And again, those who are brought to glory are those who are described as having been sanctified. Verse 11 again. They who are sanctified. And the connection is through the work of Christ. When sinners come to faith in Christ, they are set apart They are sanctified unto God's use. There's also the term used, Hebrews chapter 10. And you'll see this reinforces that idea. Hebrews chapter 10 and the verse number 10. 
where it describes the work of Christ, Christ who comes, verse 9, to do the will of God, quoting Psalm 40, then verse number 10, by the which will. In other words, by Christ doing the will of the Father in our redemption, by which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is vitally important. The sanctification now is not achieved by going through various ceremonies, not through human baptism, not through any sacraments, not through any ordination procedure even, but it's through the offering of Christ. It just reminds again that what you need in the pulpits of your church is a converted ministry. For men who know the Lord by faith and they've been brought to Christ Jesus and as such they are set apart unto the Lord. A sanctified ministry in that sense. You may take that for granted. You ought not take that for granted. It is not difficult in the modern age and it happens around us for men to pursue seminary training to come to an understanding of Bible things and then get into a pulpit, I mean, to teach the pulpit without them personally never coming to know the Lord. It's a profession for some. It's not a calling unto God's service. It is a mere profession. And so I remind you, as you pray for our seminary, as you pray for the nomination, pray that we would keep this at the forefront of our minds. We must have men who know the Lord. And in that sense, they are therefore sanctified. You see the same verse 14 of chapter 10. For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Again, this sense of the completion of our, sac- or of, of, our, of our standing before God. Not that we're perfect, but that we're sanctified by God's grace. And so, we see the importance again of God working Using men that are sanctified in this sense. Now, people sometimes ask the question, well, surely God can do what he wants with whoever he wants, don't they? And here you've got to acknowledge, yes, that's true to some degree. God is pleased to use the Assyrians. He takes the Assyrians, that nation, in his hand. And in this sense, they were meat for the master's use. They were suitable in that regard. The Babylonians the same way. Indeed, Cyrus was an instrument in God's hands to bring about the restoration of the people from the captivity. And so you look at this and say, well, what's this all about? God can use the secular world. God can use ungodly rulers. And he does. But the point here is that in in the care of Christ's church, God uses these men who are sanctified. That in the care of his people, he has a peculiar function for those who are called by God's grace. Those who are sanctified and set apart for God's use. In other words, God uses holy men. He uses holy men as he is a holy God in the care of the church. Why does God use holy men? Why is holiness important in the work of God's? Well, God, I can put it simply, God uses holy men because he is a holy God. Remember, that was Habakkuk's problem. How can a God that will not look upon sin use an ungodly nation to judge the people of God? Explains it in the language of Habakkuk, God's manner of working. 
But here we're seeing a peculiar work of God that he cares for his people and chooses to use those men that are sanctified by faith in Christ Jesus. Holiness. You see, holiness is important because holiness exemplifies the purpose of the gospel. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Remember the church is a body of people who have been cleansed by Christ's blood. They are those who are called out of the world. The ecclesia, the called out ones, they've been called out of the world. And in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, referring to Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. That is the purpose of Christ. Not to leave men in their sin, but to take men out of their sin and out of the world. And so if that is the purpose of Christ for his church, it is unthinkable for Christ to place leaders in his church who do not themselves exemplify this reality. That they are men who have been called out of the world and set apart by God. Not perfect men. Please understand that that is abundantly clear. But those who have been set apart and cleansed for Christ's service. Because that's what the gospel is meant to do. Take people out of the world and into righteousness in Christ Jesus. And so holiness is important because it exemplifies the purpose of the gospel and also it illustrates the power of the gospel. Again, you look still in Titus chapter 2. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. That's a reference to Christ coming. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. You see, Christ brings real change to sinners. And again, the pastor, the minister, must illustrate that reality. Sinners should not come to the house of God and sit under the teaching of someone who's immersed in ungodliness and worldliness. Because they come and they go, what does the gospel really do? This preacher preaches about this gospel, but it doesn't do anything in his life. Therefore, what hope do I have of doing anything in my life? You see, the preacher, the leader of God's people, the elders of the church, they themselves must illustrate these realities. The gospel leading to holiness. And the gospel being powerful enough, teaching us, instructing us, to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And so we've emphasized the importance of holiness. And I've, I trust, courage your conscience, that this concept of being sanctified and meet for the Master's use does involve this idea of being set apart through Christ's blood. But that's not all that's taught in these verses. You see, there are some, and they would be quite happy to look at this and say, well, this... This is a legal sanctification. But the language of Paul to Timothy involves the necessity of moral holiness also. That those who are sanctified in connection with their justification, they're accepted by Christ, set apart for God, just that those who are sanctified in that sense also then see what I've termed the imperatives of holiness. 
that those who are sanctified legally, if you like, are also those who pursue sanctification morally. There are imperatives here. If a man therefore purge himself for these, from these, verse 22, flee also foolish or youthful lusts, follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace. And so there are these three imperatives. One, forsake, two, flee, and three, follow. Now here, this is where the Bible comes and applies to each and every one of us here today. There are these imperatives, and these imperatives are true for all of God's people. Paul says to Timothy, and the faithful men do not be like the false teachers. Be holy unto God, but as they are to do so, they are to do this as an example to the congregation. This is not one rule for the leaders and another rule for the people in the pew. This rather is instruction to the leaders in such a way that they lead by example for the benefit of the whole body. You go back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and just to approve this and then move on. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And the verse number 12. Let no man despise thy youth, Timothy, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And those terms, there's a very strong overlap between that verse and what we see in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Very similar language regarding Timothy as an example. And so please, if you have been examining the ministry in the last number of minutes, please now turn the focus upon your own soul. I will give an account for how I apply this in my heart, and you will give an account to how you apply it in your own life. First of all, very briefly, there is the importance of forsaking. Verse 21, if a man therefore purge himself from these. And again, I think that goes back to verse number 19. Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. It's referring back to the false teaching. And so what you see, for all of God's people, they have a personal responsibility to ensure they keep separate from false teaching. That's your responsibility. It matters what you listen to on your podcasts. It matters what you listen to on the radio. It matters what you watch on the television. It matters what churches you may choose to attend for various things. All of this, you have a personal responsibility to keep separate from false teaching. That's not just my job. All of us have that responsibility. It's my job to ensure that I give a good example in that regard. And if in any way I would lead you towards compromise, then I am at fault. But you also must be clear in your mind that you avoid false teaching. You don't spread false teaching. You don't listen to false teaching. You seek to identify it. And when you hear it, you avoid it. Secondly, flee. Verse number 22, flee also youthful lusts. We may jump to conclusions here. We usually do. The word lusts here is in itself not inherently negative. It simply speaks of desires, desires that can be legitimate, but of course that can be sinful, and the fact you're to flee from these, these are sinful desires. Lusts that are sinful. 
the usual assumption here is that Paul is telling Timothy to flee from sexual immorality. Using the assumption that these are particular sins of the youth. Now I'd say that is not exclusively what he has in mind here. And I'll say more of that in a few moments. However, it is clearly included. It is vital that God's people flee from all manner of immorality. It's true of the pastor. You know, as we go through our churches and pray for our churches, please pray for our pastors that they be guarded from sexual immorality. You look back through the history of the church, and there are more ministers whose ministry is rendered useless because of their immorality. It seems to be at the very top of the devil's agenda in undermining gospel ministry by pulling the minister into some form of immorality. Pray for God to guard men from such things. But all of us as God's people, male and female, have the responsibility to flee from these things. Joseph, he's the one that comes to mind, doesn't it? He's the one who fled from youthful lusts. Understood the dangers, the temptations that were in front of him, and he fled. Now, clearly, we are not fleeing when we are pursuing the opposite direction. That's the obvious bit, isn't it? If you're pursuing immorality, you're clearly not fleeing from it. These are extremes. But it's also worth noticing that we are not fleeing when we allow our eyes to linger over pictures that we should not linger over. Things that themselves may not classify in some sort of pornographic definition, but they are things that allure and tempt, and we allow ourselves in our social media feeds perhaps to linger over these things. We're not fleeing when that happens. And we're told to flee. Flee these things. We're also not fleeing when we allow ourselves to engage socially with a man or a woman who is not our husband or our wife. I'm not talking about friendships in some level in the church that we treat each other kindly in the church. But this idea of sharing meals and coffees and all this matter with someone's not your husband or your wife, that's not fleeing from immorality. I'm just exemplifying, just giving examples of what may happen in the church. Dangers that may occur and undermine someone's usefulness in the Lord's work. We can all be used of God, but we've got to flee youthful lusts. But I did say already that I don't believe that this exhortation is only in the area of what we might term fornication and immorality. You turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I think there are two other areas that we should identify when it comes to fleeing these things. There is a necessity for all of us to flee the love of money. Verse number 10, the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some covet after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thy, O man of God, flee these things. You see the parallels there? And is it not one of the strongest of youthful lusts, the desire for more and more money? Seems to be the case that as years go on, 
people realize that they're not taking things with them from this world and they become more content with less. Not always the case, but true for many. But in youthful vigor, there's this desire to make more and more money and make progress in the world. Paul warns Timothy of this. There's also, though, in the context of 2 Timothy chapter 2, the necessity to flee from youthful pride. I'm drawing an implication here. Flee also youthful lusts. And in the instruction, Paul tells Timothy that he must in meekness instruct those that oppose themselves. And it seems to my mind that there is the implication of the danger of a youthful pastor of exalting himself in pride, saying, I know more than you do, and my position is authoritative over you. And the danger may well come of a youthful pastor exerting themselves in a prideful manner that is damaging to them and to the church. Young people get frustrated. I, I, want, I want to have my way. I, I want people to listen to my voice. And there is this danger among some, not everybody, but the danger among some to seek to exalt themselves and put themselves in prominence. And Paul tells Timothy, flee these things. Flee from the desire for pride and position. Now, these things, of course, are called youthful lusts. Let me make a point that is very, very important. These youthful desires for immorality and for money and for position and prominence, all of these things may be youthful lusts. They may characterize young people, but they don't always die with age. And the same sins can occur in those who are older in life. And all that's happening is they're embracing the things that are dominating young people, but they're also in their souls also. So please, if you're here today and you find yourself in the category of thought about this morning, whatever name you want to use for it, aged, elderly, senior, please don't presume that verse number 22 does not apply to you. The sins of young people can be the sins of old people. And may God give us grace to flee these things. Forsake, flee. Thirdly, follow. Verse 22. Follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace. This is the positive aspect of holiness. Again, being raised in a, in a fundamentalist context, we were often given the negatives of holiness. Don't do this, 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 this. Very long list of things you could not do. But there was often a lacking in instruction regarding the positives. What does a holy man look like? They look like someone running after these things. They are fleeing on the one hand, but they're not fleeing to nowhere. That's the idea. That's what the terms are used. The word follow here is a very active term. It speaks of pursuing, like a lion pursuing the prey determined to get what they're after. It's this idea of a wholehearted focused commitment. I am going to get these things. Righteousness, faith, charity, and peace. You see the same back in 1 Timothy chapter 6 once more. 1 Timothy chapter 6, you see the same idea. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. So please, if you're someone, you can say here today, well, I'm fleeing the sins of this world. 
You cannot say you're holy unto God unless you're also following these things. Both fleeing and following required of those who are holy unto God. Righteousness. Follow or pursue righteousness. Again, we are, again, so versed in the doctrine of justification that we read righteousness and we immediately think in some sort of terms of justification. Is it suggesting that we pursue Christ? Is that the idea? Well, not in terms of our justification, but pursuing Christ in terms of our sanctification. Righteousness here being used regarding our conduct before God and before man. Right is God's right. Righteousness is keeping God's law. You go back to Romans chapter 8, please. Because in Romans, of course, we know that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And as it is revealed in the gospel, we know that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. So if Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, why do we pursue righteousness? We've got Christ's righteousness already. So how do we pursue something that we have already? Well, because you've got to understand that righteousness has different aspects attached to it. There is the righteousness that justifies us in God's sight. That's Christ, and we get it the moment we believe. But there's also the understanding that those who are righteous and justified in Christ are also those who work the works of righteousness. Verse number 4 of chapter 8 of Romans says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You see what's happening here? There is therefore now no condemnation, verse number 1, for those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. But those who know no condemnation are those who also have been given the gift of the Spirit of God. And by the work of the Spirit of God, they are no longer in the flesh, verse number 9, but they're in the Spirit. Therefore, they can please God, implied in verse number 8. But how do they please God? By the righteousness of the law being fulfilled in them. Not for them, not outside them, but in them as the Spirit of God works in their souls. And so those who have the Spirit of God, they then pursue tenaciously righteousness in their home life, in their work life, in their church life. They are those who are determined to walk with integrity before God and before man. How do you pursue righteousness? Well, first of all, you do it by the power of the Spirit. It's only by the Spirit that we can do these things, Romans chapter 8. But it also implies, not only do we do it by the Spirit, but we also do it in light of the Scriptures. Righteousness is not a human opinion, it is God's opinion as to what is right. And so those who are holy are those who are bursting with eagerness to know what does the Bible say regarding how I live in this world. I want to know God's will for my life, and I'm going to eagerly pursue that. That's what holiness looks like. And then thirdly, when you do it by the Spirit, according to the Scriptures, you then yourself seek to put off sin and to put on righteousness. You are not content unless you know you're walking with your God humbly and in holiness. 
It's a vigorous pursuit. I'm not telling you for one second that that earns your salvation. That's not it at all. But that those who are holy unto God are those who tenaciously pursue righteousness. Secondly, very quickly, faith. Faith in this context is hard to be certain regarding its definition. We often think of faith in terms of our reliance upon God and His promises. We, we certainly want to pursue that. Like the man, we understand, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We want to pursue faith in God's promises. But in the context, it seems to my mind to refer more to conduct than conviction. And so faith in this regard can be used to refer to someone's faithfulness. It is required of stewards that they be faithful. And so the idea here is that we ought to pursue what I might term dependability, reliability. That as the servant of God vows to serve the church, so they want to pursue faith in that regard. They want to be dependable, trustworthy, And so for all of God's people, you want to pursue this dependability in the work of God. That you're reliable. Not changeable or pliable or all manner bunion-like terms. That you could be this one day and something the other day, but rather you are steadfast, upright. You're a person of faith by himself being faithful. I think that's the idea. Not blown about by the wind. We live in a day when people are so unreliable. Their word is not dependable. There are those who make commitments to this or that, and those commitments last a few days, and then they're gone again. We need to pursue faith. Thirdly, we need to pursue charity or love. And of course, love for God and man We see that you cannot love man properly unless you love God. And so, of course, there is a sense of pursuing love for God. But I think the sense is, in this context, again, the need to pursue love in the church with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. It is this horizontal aspect of love, again, that we pursue it. That immediately implies that love is an action, not just a feeling. You pursue the action of love in the church. You think of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse number 12. Again, Paul to the church there, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another, and toward all men, even as we do toward you. Righteousness, faith, love, peace. In the context, I think again it involves peace with others. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now what is fascinating again here is that Paul tells Timothy to pursue peace in the context of false teachers who are to be exposed and condemned for their false teachers, false teaching, and yet he's still to pursue peace. Well, how? Not by compromise. Not by compromising the false teaching, but by correcting and restoring the false. Peace that is in truth so you get verse number 25, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves that they may repent and be recovered. This idea of peace 
Again, I say it is likely horizontal in terms of the parallel Hebrews chapter 12. Follow peace with all men. Be a peacemaker. Pursue peace. These are just four terms used by Paul in terms of the necessity, the imperatives of holiness. Following righteousness, faith, charity, peace. Note in closing today, we'll come back to this next Lord's Day. We don't do this in isolation. That's the comfort of the end of verse number 22. We seek to be holy as ministers and as members in connection with the church community, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. In other words, the church that emphasizes the need for separation and godliness and holiness is a church that does so as a praying community. Praying, calling upon the Lord, worshiping God out of a pure heart. You will find it so much more difficult to flee false teaching, to flee youthful lusts, and to follow godliness in spiritual isolation. God has given us the church to enable us to pursue these things together, to encourage each other, to pray for each other. It's a hard world out there. We need the Lord's people to pray with us. So we see the necessity of a sanctified ministry. And I said to you in the context of this section, what we're seeing here as Paul instructs Timothy, he's telling Timothy what sort of minister he should be in order for the church to benefit from that ministry. And so next time we're together, we will see that a sanctified ministry is a ministry that is prepared unto every good work. And so pray, pray for God, again, to raise up men who are prepared unto every good work. And you're going to wait until next week to examine what that means. Well, let's pray, let's ask for God's help and grace upon us as we think again of the importance of these subjects. Eternal God, we realize again that we are poor and needy. We keep coming back to that reality. We see the importance of living a holy life in your word. We thank you, dear Father, we're set apart by Christ. And yet we realize, O oh Lord, there are these strong imperatives, these commands that come to us. How we need the help of the Spirit of God. And so as we leave here now, we pray that each and every one of us would know what it is to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. We think of those, O oh Lord, and in their, their minds right now, they, they want to live a life pleasing to you, and yet they're still in the flesh and not in the Spirit. O oh Lord, we pray you'd convert them by your grace even today. Call them to yourself. Set them on the path of godliness. And we pray, O oh God, for some. And they prone, they're prone to wonder. They're prone to, again, fall away. Oh, Lord, we pray that our hearts would be sealed. Guard us in your truth. Help us to walk humbly with thee. Bless this Sabbath day to our souls. We do pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.